season of Don't Shoot the Messenger is brought to you by 91. 91 is an authorized financial service provider. We are proud of you. Our results shall always remain fancy. That's a man called Shumi Shongwe. He's the principal of Pumlani Secondary School in Katlehong, the township south of Johannesburg. Perhaps it's revealing that in South Africa, we don't tend to make movies about inspirational teachers. But if we did, Shumi Shongwe is the Oh Captain, My Captain character. He's Robin Williams in Dead Poets Society. He's Sidney Poitier in To Sir With Love. He's Michelle Pfeiffer in Dangerous Minds. Shumi Shongwe keeps his school running at an over 97% pass rate against incredible odds in one of the most deprived areas in the country. And he does so in a way that explodes some of the preconceptions around what successful schools look like. In our third season of Don't Shoot the Messenger, the Daily Maverick podcast where we bring you the stories behind the stories, we're focusing on solutions rather than problems. We all know what South Africa's greatest challenges are. What we want to know is how to fix them. In this episode, we're tackling education. We're speaking to an expert on probably the world's most respected school system, chatting to someone who toured schools all around South Africa to get a sense of what makes the good ones good. And along the way, we're busting some of the myths that have been built up over the years around this troublesome topic. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm your host, Rebecca Davis. My name is Pasi Salberg, and I'm a professor of education policy at the University of New South Wales, Sydney, Australia. If you're thinking Professor Pasi Salberg doesn't sound very Australian, you're right. He's Finnish, which is a highly desirable nationality in education policy circles, because you only have to spend two minutes researching the world's best schools, and you'll come across people discussing Finland. Finland is constantly at the top of league tables measuring global education performance. It's no exaggeration to say that the Finnish school system is the envy of the world. And yet there are elements about this that are quite mysterious. I think it's important to understand that Finland is, has not been able to accomplish these good uh, or better international results by doing the same things that everybody else is doing a little bit better. Finland spends relatively little on education. Finnish students spend relatively little time in school compared to other countries, and Finnish teachers spend less time teaching, relatively speaking. These factors in themselves seem to violate some of the most fundamental tenets of high-quality education. Finland has always believed that the strong public education system is a kind of a cornerstone or bedrock of, of good education, and this is, this is what the Finns have had really since the early 1970s, that everything has been built on school education is a, is a publicly funded and publicly governed. So it means that education is seen as a, as a common good, which is a very different way compared to many other countries. Let's pause here to say that might be very different to other countries, but it's not that different to South Africa. 
The ANC's Freedom Charter, adopted in 1955, pledges that all shall enjoy equal rights to educate their children. And the Constitution enshrined this into law, stating that everyone has the right to a basic education. We certainly don't lack for affirmations from politicians about the importance of education or the acknowledgement that a decent education system is the only way to secure our national future. We get told that practically every week. So we're definitely on board with Finland, ideologically speaking. It's just that in South Africa's case, it doesn't really seem to translate into anything much. The teacher and leader professionalism is, is something that also distinguishes Finland from many other countries early on. This started already in the 1970s when all the teachers in Finnish schools had to go through an academic um, initial teacher education in the research universities. Uh, and this has gradually built a, a high trust in teachers and schools that is a, is a very different thing compared to many other countries. This is indeed very different from South Africa. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, we don't make movies about teachers in this country. One of the reasons for the high level of trust in Finnish teachers, as alluded to by Pasi, is that the teachers themselves are so highly educated. In Finland, all teachers have to have a master's degree, and that includes the ones teaching tiny kids. The primary school teacher education has been based on master's degree since 1979. So it means that now all, all the teachers have this new degree. So teachers in Finland enjoy high levels of respect within the society, which probably helps compensate a bit for the fact that they don't earn extravagant salaries. Passi says their wages are pretty much bang average for Finnish society. Here's another factor Passi believes is key to Finnish educational success. We have been able to keep the kind of a daily political issues out of this kind of a running, practical running of schools, which again is a very different in many other places. The kind of a politics will will end somewhere in the kind of a regional or, or national level conversations, but never reach the daily work of principals and teachers as it is in many other places. The teachers, teachers have really have had a freedom and peace to do what they think is the best thing to do with the kids without concerning about the politics so much. Now, in South Africa, politics permeate education to a significant degree, largely through the country's most controversial union, the South African Democratic Teachers Union, SAD2. South African children lose more teaching days to strike action than any other country in Southern Africa. And it's really difficult to understate the power of SAD2, which has a monthly income from membership fees of around 20 million rand. It's the only union which has a presence in every part of the country and in every ANC branch, which is why the ANC government tends to approach it very gingerly, because all those teachers are also a very useful campaigning resource come elections. Back to Pasi. He says another feature of the Finnish school system is that there's only a very broad sense of a national curriculum framework. On the day-to-day, Curriculum design is left to local governments and to the teachers themselves, which lets them adapt what they're teaching to students' interests and needs. And they can do this because there's only one standardized test for Finnish students, the school exit exam at the end of high school. Now, it's all very well yearning for the Finnish education system, but Finland has a raft of factors on its side that South Africa lacks. For one thing, it's tiny. 
The country has fewer than 6 million inhabitants. In fact, Finland has fewer inhabitants than the Western Cape alone. It's also fairly rich. It's had a stable recent political history. So there are good reasons why we can't expect to match Finland's school system overnight, though we can certainly aspire to it. But Pasi is also an expert on education systems globally. So I asked him, what features do the best school systems in the world share? One criteria seems to be that if the national education policies are aiming at trying to make sure that the neighborhood school is the best school for all the children, that seems to be like a common thing in many or most of the high-performing education systems that they have had both education policies and social policies that try to make sure that parents don't need to go shopping and, and kind of choose and select the school for their kids, that the neighborhood school is the one that is good enough for all. And that's definitely the situation in places like Finland or many parts of Canada, not everywhere, but, but many parts uh, of Canada. Estonia is a good example as well. And then there are things you'd think would make a big difference and actually don't. For instance, in South Africa, we are pretty hung up on class size, the number of pupils per teacher. I think it's fair to say that there's a basic assumption that the smaller the class, the higher quality the education. Passy says that's simply not true. Studies show there's almost no correlation between classroom size and educational outcomes. In Asian countries here, for example, you go to uh, Singapore, South Korea, Japan, you see that the classes are full of kids, 40 or 50 kids normally in the class. So what does Finland teach us? That throwing money at an education system can be meaningless if the right factors aren't in play. That what should matter is how well the students can learn rather than how closely teachers can stick to a curriculum. That too much emphasis on exams can be pointless and that a society which venerates teachers may be the most fertile ground of all. When we're back, we speak to a documentarian who toured South Africa in search of the schools making it work against the odds. Change is everywhere. Sometimes it's good, sometimes confusing, or so extraordinary that it challenges everyone and everything. But whatever change comes next, 91 will strive to do everything possible to make a positive change for your investments and for the world we live in. 91, investing for a world of change. This season of Don't Shoot the Messenger is brought to you by 91. 91 is an authorized financial service provider. Molly Blank describes herself as an educator and a storyteller and a documentary filmmaker. She's American, as you'll hear, but since 2004 has spent close to 10 years living and working in education in South Africa. Once you care about the education system in South Africa, I think that you kind of never can step out of that. There's so much happening and there's so much constant challenge and I sort of stayed in touch and have really good and strong relationships with former students of mine, some of whom are now teachers or parents. And so education, you know, it's just something I care deeply about as well. Molly got so invested in the South African education system that she ended up writing a book about it in 2014, together with Professor Jonathan Jansen. 
The book was titled How to Fix South Africa's Schools, Lessons from Schools that Work. And to write the book, Molly ended up traveling all over South Africa, visiting schools with really high matric pass rates, despite having major challenges to overcome. I got to go all around the country, like from Johannesburg and Katlehong to seeing the Namibian border to like, I drove past the school and had no hill to go up the school. You're just driving on this dirt road. It's the only school. And this is a school where, you know, there are 760 students, 20 teachers, but like there was one class where there were 97 kids in the class. And the students were like all quiet, totally paying attention. And the principal says to me, it's better than the 102 we had last year. And he shows me his car and he's like, this used to be the school office and this used to be the classroom and it's this beautiful tree. You get the picture. Molly and Professor Janssen ended up identifying 19 of these surprisingly high-achieving schools. And Molly also made short documentary films about each one. At the beginning of this episode, we played you some audio of Shumi Shongwe, the principal of Pumlani Secondary School in Katlahong. That was from the documentary Molly made about the school. There are links to all the films in the show notes, and they're really worth watching, particularly if you're feeling like things are a bit hopeless in South Africa. Anyway, Pumlani Secondary School is a really, really good example of how certain schools achieve good results year on year against the odds. On the surface, it looks like the stereotype of an under-resourced South African school. The paint is peeling, the walls are crumbling, and it's clear that they have very little in the way of functional infrastructure. So what is it that keeps the school in Katlahong returning around 97% matric pass rates every year? Well, the teachers themselves have a pretty good idea. Here's Portia Ndima, the Isizulu teacher. We are a very disciplined school, from school uniform, arriving early, going early to class, starting lessons on time, which involve teachers being uh, in class on time, all the time. This is Shumi Shongwe, the principal again. We don't compromise if we are to hire an educator. If you are to teach science, you should have done physical science, mathematics, at high school level, and we have got a major in maths and physical science. Our educators, when they are to go to class, they are excited about the whole thing because they are going to deliver something that they have done at high school, something that they have done at university level, and that is our strong point. And finally, here's Skara Nkosi, the accounting teacher. The, the teamwork doesn't start in grade 12 at Pumlani, but the teamwork starts with the grade 8. That's where we close the gap. And you'll find that maybe most schools, their problem is that they start focusing in grade 12 at grade 12. And you can't mend four years' problem in a year. It's very much difficult. You can't, you can't. What the Pumlani Secondary School teachers are articulating there are some of the elements that Molly Black and Jonathan Janssen would end up identifying as being crucial strategies for fixing South Africa's schools insist on punctuality and timekeeping from both teachers and pupils, hire teachers who are educated to the highest level possible in the subject they're teaching, get parents involved in their kids' results, and don't think that you can start cramming kids for matric the year before after years of coasting and think you'll end up with good results. But what the teachers also said, which Molly reiterated to me, is that probably none of this would be possible without Shumi Shongwe, 
this truly inspirational figure at the top of the school, setting the institutional culture. I think the thing is that a good principal creates a community of learning, and that includes teachers. A principal has to invest in their staff, make their staff understand what's at stake, make teachers feel, you know, it's the whole school that has to have the same energy and environment. It doesn't work if the principal is like, this is what I want for the kids, but doesn't help the teachers do that. One of the things we say is visible principal leadership. That just means not sitting in your office all day. It's not a difficult thing to do, but it makes a huge difference when kids see you, when teachers see you. You know, the school feels different. A lot of this is about the way a school feels, which sets expectations and creates a, you know, a space of safety for a lot of kids who don't have that at home or don't have stability at home or don't have food security. Molly also found that it's usually the principals who set the tone for the school's engagement with the community, which can be super important. At Pumlani Secondary School, for instance, women from the community come in and cook for the kids. And while that sense of rootedness in the community is really critical for a school to succeed, there's another intangible aspect that the research has identified, and that's the ability of a principal and teachers to get students to believe deeply that a life awaits them beyond school. I think when you grow up in a place where you look around and you see a lot of people who might have not been able to finish their education, who are unemployed, struggling with unemployment, that you can look around and say, well, this is what I'm going to get, right? Why am I going to come to school? I'm going to go, but like, I'm going to finish school and I'm still going to be here. The idea of saying, if you do really well, you can go to university and you can come back here and here is not a bad place to be. But the world outside is yours. You do have access to it, not just those kids in the city, you know, or wherever. You have access to that too. But here's something that the researchers didn't find, that you need to have a lot of resources to create a successful school. Of course, the ideal situation would be if every South African student had a desk and a chair and the necessary textbooks. And a large part of what makes the current education system seem so brutal and immoral is that private schools have the resources of an Ivy League university, while government schools lack the most basic features, like toilets. But the fact remains, schools don't fail or thrive based on their resources. And that's what Pussy Salberg told me too. He said there are ways for countries to make smart investments in education, and they don't include giving every kid a laptop or making sure that every school has an astroturf. They don't even include hiring more teachers, which Pasi says often is not the best use of money for a school system. My grandmother used to say that it's always cheaper to prevent than repair. And, you know, m- many countries are still, in ed- when it comes to education, they're in this business of repairing. In other words, they try to kind of fix the damage that is done already. Trying to help the kids who have been left behind in school can be very, very costly. Pasi says... Any educational economist will tell you the same thing. The best money you can spend in a schooling system isn't on matrix. It's on babies. 
the best investments are the ones that go in the very early years. So the first three years of children's lives or first six years, normally before schooling. And then, you know, the, the money that we spend on people or human capital tends to give much less returns the older the students get. If you listened to last week's show on how to fix South Africa's violent crime problem, Pasi's words might cause a bit of deja vu. That's because the very same advice, focus on babies, make sure children are safe and stimulated and well-fed for their first years of life, was given to us on how to ensure a drop in the crime rate in years to come. And that's because, as that sadly departed sage Whitney Houston told us, children are the future, in every sense. Don't Shoot the Messenger is a podcast brought to you by The Daily Maverick. This episode was produced by Haji Mohammed Dauji and written by Rebecca Davis. Editing by Tevya Turok-Shapiro. Sound mix by Bernard Kotze. And additional support from Catherine Kotze. You can listen to Don't Shoot the Messenger on The Daily Maverick's website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more, subscribe to The Daily Maverick's newsletters and follow us on Twitter and Instagram.